Hello listeners, my name is Ray, and I will be guiding you along this case with my partner. So sit down, grab your cup of tea, and listen to this crime. For those of you who are new here, welcome. This is Murder with a Cup of Tea. I hope you enjoy. I am a behavior analysis and writer, and this is my partner, who will introduce himself. Hello, my name is John, and I'm an, a journalist for the New York Times crime section. So we will be covering the case of Dr. David Brian Stidham, which occurred on October 5th, 2004. Dr. Stidham was a 37-year-old pediatric ophthalmologist, or an eye surgeon for children. He was married and a father of two. He was dedicated to his job, and on the evening of October 5th, he was giving a lecture in a small group of medical students. The lecture was wrapped up, and Dr. Stidham left. This time was at 7.26 p.m. About three hours later, 911 dispatchers received a call. A man was down in the parking lot of North First Medical Center. When the police arrived on the scene, they found Siddham, dead, in a pool of blood. He endured 15 stab rooms and a fractured skull. His cell phone was missing, and his car was not in the parking lot. The only evidence in the parking lot that was left and what could lead us to the killer was a pizza pizza. This was going to be an interesting case. So, let's review the crime scene. We have Dr. Stidham, who has suffered several stab wounds and a fractured skull, and a few feet away from the scene, a pizza slice with a bite taken out of it. This may not seem like a lot, but it gave the detectives plenty of clues. According to DNA, the person who had been eating the pizza slice was Dr. Stidham himself. So if he was eating the pizza, why would they be on the ground, a good distance away from him? Detectives came up with a theory. Dr. Stidham set the pizza slice on top of his car and, as he was opening the door and was viciously attacked. After he fell to the ground, the attackers got in his vehicle and drove away, causing the pizza slice to fly off the car. Dr. Siddham's autopsy later confirmed this theory. Looking at the wounds, the medical examiner concluded that the attack happened quickly and with great force. The level of brutality in this attack is common in cases where the murderer knows the victim, so police began looking for known enemies. The people who are usually first informed about the murder is the next of kin. Police knocked on Mrs. Siddham's door late at night, but she didn't answer, and she wasn't answering the phone either. So, police broke in. They found the phone in a bedroom, unplugged. Financial documents were strewn about on the bedstand. When the police woke up, Mrs. Stidham, she was sound asleep. The first thing she said, Has my husband been shot? All of this seemed pretty suspicious, but the evidence was circumstantial. The financial documents weren't very convincing as they didn't relate directly to Dr. Stidham and Miss, Mrs. Stidham probably said those things out of shock and the fact that police officers had come into her home. So officers moved, up, moved on to other leads. The first thing needed to be done was to locate Stidham's car. His cell phone was not found by the body or at his work or home. So on a hunch, authorities called the cell phone and then tracked which cell towers were used during the call. They tracked the phone down to a parking garage six miles away from the crime scene.
There they found Stidham's Lexus, abandoned, with his cell phone in the passenger seat. Blood was found on the driver's seat, driver's side of the door, and on the inside of the door itself, indicating that Dr. Stidham was attacked while getting into his car. Now we know how the murder went down. So now we need to find any enemies that Dr. Stidham had. Dr. Stidham was incredibly well-liked by all of his patients and co-workers. It seemed detectives were at a dead end until they discovered where Dr. Stidham was previously employed. Prior to the opening of his own practice, Dr. Stidham worked at Arizona Specialty Eye Care under Dr. Bradley Schwartz. Stidham was a good doctor there, and as things went on, it seemed to get worse and worse, and something came into light. Dr. Schwartz was committing drug fraud. Schwartz had his medical license revoked, and perturbed Stidman left and started his own practice. After interviewing those who knew Stidman, detectives found out that Schwartz had been very bitter towards Stidman. He felt that he was intentionally stealing patients and considered harming Stidman or trying to ruin his career by planting child pornography on his computer. Police checked his alibi and found that he was on date at the time of the murder with Lisa Goldberg. When police interviewed Lisa, she said that the date was rather strange, as a friend of Schwartz, who identified himself at Bruce, joined them later at dinner, wearing surgical scrubs. They engaged in some strange conversation, which almost seemed like code, and then Bruce left. Lisa also said that Schwartz received a phone call before Bruce arrived, so the police ran Schwartz's phone records. He had gotten a call from a public telephone, in a convenience store, not far from the murder, which means whoever used this phone might be the killer. So they went to the location of the store to see if the cashier who was on duty at the time saw the person who used the phone, and she said that the man actually came in and purchased some snack food. He was dressed in surgical scrubs and said that he was purchasing the food because he was attending a meeting where serving pizza he didn't like, which, remember, Stidman's meeting had pizza. So this sounds like our Bruce character who arrived at the dinner. Detectives searched for any ties to the man named Bruce on Schwartz's file and found out that Bruce Bigger was one of Schwartz's patients. He was homeless and didn't have a mobile phone. People who knew him claimed that the day after Stidham's murder, he was walking around bragging with a big wad of cash in his hand that he had said he had just made about $10,000. Police had enough evidence to arrest Schwartz, but they needed something concrete that would prove Bigger committed the murder. Forensic scientists took samples from everywhere in the car, and at first, it seemed like Bigger was going to get away with murder. But when a, something came up on one of the samples, a swab taken from the knob of an air conditioning, it was called Sample LX39.
the sample came back with traces of DNA, other than Stidman's. It was a very small amount, but just enough to run against other DNA. It was compared to Bruce Bigger's DNA, and it was a match. They had caught the guys, and Stidham was given justice. And Schwartz now faces charges for conspiracy to murder, and Bigger faces charges for first-degree murder. I'll be interviewing Ella Wampner, a co-worker of both Dr. Schwartz and Dr. Stidham, so we can get to know what they were like both as doctors and as people. Good evening, Ms. Wampner, and thank you for speaking to me. My pleasure. I really want people to know about how fantastic Dr. Stidham was. So this tragedy isn't forgotten. Well, that certainly is commendable. Tell me, how was Dr. Stidham like as a boss and as a co-worker? Oh, he was great. So understanding and considerate. He really picked the right profession because he was fantastic with kids. Well, and how about Dr. Schwartz? Well, he wasn't a bad doctor, but you know what happened with him in the DEA, which really caused everyone working with him to try and distance themselves from them. The DEA raid on Dr. Schwartz's establishment. What can you tell me about that? It was really scary. We were all working when they walked in and told us they needed to search the office. We weren't told what about, but when we heard the drug fraud, we were all so surprised. I'm still astounded that they let him return to work. They had him go through a lot of different sessions, but I really don't think he quit with that whole drug business. Hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to say to us? Hmm. I don't think so. It was just so terrible what happened. What a waste of a life. My heart goes out to Dr. Stidham's family. I definitely agree with you on that. Thank you so much, Mrs. Wampner. No problem. After many emails and calls, we have been able to contact Lisa Goldberg, and in this conversation you will be hearing is us sitting down and talking about how she feels about everything. Hello Lisa, I'm Ray. I turned the recorder on. Please feel free to take a break. If you need anything, you are allowed to say you do not know or do not want to answer a question if it makes you uncomfortable. Hello, I'm Lisa Goldberg. I was dating that man, Bradley Swartz, at the time he did that horrible thing. Uh, where were you the night of the murder of Dr. Stidman? Bradley and I were having dinner. I want to say it was Italian, but I try to forget that night as much as possible. I'm sorry, it's okay, you're safe here, and anything that you want to never mention again, don't feel free, you, need, you don't need to. It's okay, I agreed to do this. I want to do this. Alright, so how did you feel during the dinner? 
I felt fine for the most part, but Bradley was acting weird. He was checking his phone, and then his friend came. You mean Mr. Biggers? Yeah, that's who he was. And what was so weird about him? He showed up to our dinner date and then sat down with us. Him and Bradley were talking weirdly, and it was unlike him to talk like that. In Briggers, he only ordered a drink. No food? No, he just picked off of our plates. I'm tired. Can that be all? Of course. It was very nice to sit down and meet with you. Thank you. The next audio clip I'm putting is an interview with the wife of David Simon, Daphne. On this recording, we'll talk about the night of everything happening. Hello, I'm Reagan McHugh. It's nice to be able to sit down and talk with you. Thank you. This tea you have is amazing. <laughs> so let's get into the questions. Please know if there's anything you don't want to answer or makes you uncomfortable, please let me know. Thank you so much. So what were you doing that night? I was at home with my kids. Why didn't you pick up the phone? I had a long day, so I ended up taking some sleeping pills to feel better. When did you wake up? When the police showed up. You asked who killed your husband when they showed up. Why did you ask that? I've always had a feeling, just like I told the cops to look into stores. We had a nice life. It, I mean, it wasn't perfect. Thank you, I get it. So about the court. It was hard. It was a hard decision to make, but it was the best decision. What happened was wrong, and I'm a single mom now. I had kids to take care of. Taking action set a good example. Thank you so much. It was nice sitting here. Thank you for having me. These court trials weren't a simple situation at all. As we talked about the case, it seemed clear what happened, and with all the evidence, it was easy to convict and finish. Sadly, most of the evidence was circumstantial. In, in murder trials, the jury is taught and explained how to question every ed evidence and want hard evidence and fact. This isn't a TV show with a magical hard evidence. When first going into the court, both Bradley Schwartz and Bruce Bigger were charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. How did def the defendants plead? Not guilty. Their attorneys to fight this case were court-provided. Bradley's attorney was named Brick Stortz. It took a while for the case to st start due to a delay in the court system. So after all, all this, the trial for Bradley Schwartz first began in March 2006. The bigger trials for this case wouldn't be heard by the court until the following March 2007. Early in the trial, Bradley's lawyer suggested that the attorney-client relationship between Bradley and Lourdes Lopez, who was a foster mother of Bradley's patients, and there seemed to be a romantic relationship going on between the two. She allowed him to use her name to attain drugs, and this was preluded from the case and was not going in trial. He also tried to use the argument that he based most of Bradley's innocence on and would often come back to that the time between the death, Bruce's whereabouts, and the fact that the $10,000 has seemingly vanished. 
Prosecuting attorney Sylvia Lafferty pointed to Schwartz's cell phone records, which showed that he received calls from a payphone at Denny's across the street from Stim's office. Schwartz's cell phone also received collect calls from Bigger's, Bigger's hotel room. The nature of the phone discussions had changed over the course of the night. Schwartz began to reassure Bigger that he had his money. The DNA evidence from Biggers in Stidham's car also proved the evidence of the prosecution. Throughout this trial, Schwartz never took the stand. He was eventually convicted and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison for the conspiracy to murder Stidham. Now, finally time for Biggers' trial. Bigger took, Bigger's trial took place on March 14, 2007 until... March 16, 2007. Biggest defense attorney, Jill Thorpe, tried to prove that it was Schwartz who had actually physically committed the murder. Surprisingly, both the prosecution and the defense attacked Schwartz's character. This led prosecutors Sylvia Lafferty and Richard Platt also brought in more sophisticated DNA analysis than used in Schwartz's trial, probably because it was so obvious he was the hitman. In the end, the trial overall showed Schwartz was an extremely, extremely manipulative individual, causing the jury to feel sympathy for Bigger. See, now that isn't right. Dude was a grown, grown man and can deal with manipulative dude. He murdered someone for the money. That's it. Doesn't matter if he was manipulative or not. It's fine. It's fine. He was still found guilty of both conspiracy to commit first-degree murder and first-degree murder itself. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Nice. And there is a third trial. It's not exactly about the murder, but it can lead into the aftermath and where they are now. A brief rundown of the trial is that Daphne Stidham filed a lawsuit against the county. To be specific, against Pima County attorney Barbara Lawwell, Pima County and former prosecutor Londres Lopez. The trial started in April 2005 and was ended when Daphne settled for $2.29 million. For where they are now, it's pretty simple to assume. Biggers is in jail and never getting out. Swartz is in jail with a chance of parole in 2029. There is little to no chance he is getting out. This is because Daphne, jury members, and the judge won't allow it based on the evidence. Hopefully. Lastly, there is little known about Daphne Stidham and her child because, children because they're just humans who had something tragic happen to them, and they want to live their lives and move on. The same applies to Swartz's girlfriend. What can we take away from this? The tragic murder of a gifted doctor, doctor killed by a manipulative doctor's contract killer. It is certainly a depressing story, but a good story to showcase the triumphs of modern forensic technology that helps put a truly evil individual behind bars. This is John O'Shea signing off. See you next week for another cup of tea and murder.